I'm Greg Lambrecht, founder of Intrinsic Therapeutics and one of the inventors of the Barricade Annular Closure Device. Last week, we heard from Dr. Pierce Nunley, Professor Claudius Tomei, and Professor Roger Hartle on history and common themes in the evolution of spinal care, and learned why preserving more of the native disc is important for patients and surgeons. In this week's Chapter 2, we asked the question, how are we preserving the disc today? Let's hear more from these great spine surgeons. Well, welcome to Chapter 2. Uh, we have talked about the history, and now we really want to talk about uh, current practice. Uh, what are we currently trying to do to preserve the disc? Uh, we have uh, two esteemed colleagues here, uh, Professor Roger Hartle uh, uh, and also Professor Claudius Tomei. It's a uh, been a, a really amazing journey thinking about the disc and how to preserve the disc. And what's really important is what are we doing today? You know, what is the state of the art of surgical management? We talked in our last segment about how uh, we were trained to do large uh, fragmentectomies and take out the disc, and now maybe that's different. So, uh, Professor Hartle, Roger, if you could start. Uh, maybe talking about how do you train your residents and fellows today about the disc and about uh, taking out the disc in microdiscectomy? Cheers, with, with pleasure. I think it's very important to study uh, preoperative MRI scans to really get an understanding, you know, first of all, an expectation. Is it a, is a, is a, is it a uh, extruded disc fragment? Is it contained? Th those things are very important, and that already kind of shapes your planning then, let's assume that we go in and, and, and we're going to do a surgical discectomy or, or a decompression. So you've got to understand preoperatively based on the MRI scan, maybe even based on the patient's symptoms, what to expect once you get in there. In principle, I, I, I will teach my fellows and residents that if you can avoid incising the disc, you, sh you should certainly do that, meaning you should not incise the disc if you can. So if you have a free fragment and there's no uh, annular defect that you can identify, then certainly don't create one. You know? And Claudius obviously mentioned that before. That, that gets to the point where, it's, you know, especially younger patients, sometimes they may have a large uh, contained disc fragment that causes more, almost like a lumbar spinal stenosis picture. And in those patients, I may only do a decompression. You know, I may you know, obviously look at the disc, make sure that there's no fragment that's already extruded. But if the, if the disc herniation is contained, and I can get a good decompression, and I use tubes for that, but you can do the same probably with the endoscope. Uh, but as, as, as long as you minimize the iatrogenic impact on the facet joint and other supportive structures, you can get a really, really nice decompression with a tube, probably with an endoscope as well, and get beautiful decompression without having to incise the disc. So I'll, especially in young patients, I would tr certainly try to avoid incising the disc. And, and those are some of the principles that I apply. I think in, in Claudio's paper, really, for me, certainly, was, was a landmark paper in that regard. You know, you try to uh, avoid uh, incising the disc. You remove the fragment. You don't chase uh, the disc material inside the disc. And, and those are the principles that I try to convey to fellows and residents. Excellent. And Claudius, uh, we did talk about it in the last segment, but this is a new segment. If you could, uh, again, kind of... Uh, give us your history and recap of your thinking process and how you train uh, your fellows and residents. Yeah, as, as I went before, we trained when we were young residents to be very aggressive in the disc. And I think this is, this is obviously harmful. We created big box-shaped defects. And I think this is something you should never do. And as Roger already alluded to, I think it's very important that we 
look at both the imaging beforehand. Sometimes the imaging doesn't tell you everything and you find out at surgery that it may look a little different and you do have fragments that you didn't really think there were. But it's very important to look at every patient individually and see whether you can leave the inner disc, the nucleus intact and just take out fragments. They may be below the ligament um, you may actually come by compression of the protrusion they may come out and you may still not find a true hole in the annulus and i think that's important that you teach your resident to be that less is more the less you do the better it is also the same is true it's a little off topic but also we see a lot of spinal stenosis patients that have significant disc protrusions and i know that some of my colleagues they would go in and take out the disc in addition to the decompression and i think it's also important to learn that this is not what you should do then just the decompression usually is absolutely adequate to to resolve the claudication and the patient will be happy and you will not destroy this segment or cause later on instability you know that that's where the patient history is so important you know uh, because we see that all the time what audio says you know patient has lumbar stenosis and it looks like there's a big discrimination but but those patients may present with neurogenic claudication right. they never had reticular or sciatica type pain so that's where the history comes in and, and how that patient presents, and that influences your surgical decision-making process. That's a great point, uh, Roger. I think, again, we always want to talk about uh, widgets and x-rays and MRIs, but what I always tell patients is I, I treat patients, not MRIs and x-rays. Sure. And I think we three of us completely agree on uh, this concept. I'm exactly the same. Uh, don't touch the disc if it doesn't need to be touched. I tell people, once you take the roof off the car, if everything looks good, there's no sense taking anything more out, you know, so uh, less is more. I mean, all these things that you guys are saying, the same things I'm saying. Let's segue a little bit back with Claudius and talk to us about the RCT that uh, you were part of in Europe. Uh, that was an amazing study. And uh, most people listening to this don't understand. So if you could just give us a brief, brief background of the study, how it was conducted and what, what it was targeting and then the results, that would be excellent. I'm happy to do that. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be quick because I can talk probably hours about this, but you won't let me. So, <laughs> so I'll try to be, be quick. So um, I was involved with the company for quite some time because of my interest to preserve the disc. And, and I felt it was going to be a good idea to plug the hole. And in contrast to previous technology that would stick something in without fixing it to, to the surrounding structures, when I saw the device for the first time, being anchored to the bone, I felt this would be something that actually stays in place. Um, that's how I got involved. Then the second question was also when we thought about designing the study, when are we going to randomize the patient? Are we going to do two groups where, we, where, where the surgeon knows beforehand or not? And we decided to actually do the disc surgery. And then the patient was randomized at, when the surgeon said, now I'm done. So meaning that you would actually not influence how much disc was taken out and also the amount of disc that was taken out was, was, was assessed. And then it was either the patient was closed or the patient got the device. And then overall, we looked at 550 patients, so half randomized to control and half randomized to the barricade device. And what we found after two, three, four, now we are looking at five-year follow-up, was that the re rate which none of the centers believed or expected 
was as high as Carrigi predicted it for this high-risk population. Right. So it's very important. This is not the average patient. This is the high-risk population, high-disc, big hole. And we also found a regeneration of close to 30%, and then some 20% needed reoperations. And we were able to, to reduce that rate by more than half with the device, and we had a low number of device-related complications, so overall it turned out to be highly significant and beneficial to actually use the device for this high-risk population. Excellent, excellent. I think it would be interesting, too, since uh, Professor Hartle has not placed any of these yet. What are your thoughts about this device as somebody that's not used it? I think it's very important to come up with some kind of strategy to reduce the risk of recurrent disc herniations, obviously. I haven't used it yet because of the approval process has been a little bit complicated, especially at our hospital. Uh, then again, it comes down to patient selection, and then patients really have to obviously understand what, what it is that we're doing to them, and, and there has to be like a certain buy-in from the patient side as well. And, and that requires then that we have it available, that we can actually offer it to patients. So it's a little bit of a vicious circle at this point. But once we have it available and we can actually seriously talk to patients about what it means to, to have this done and what it means in terms of benefit for them, that's certainly one of the challenges. I've tried other annular closure devices like suture, you know, there were a number of different uh, technologies out there. And they, they work at, at times, but it's very unreliable in terms of predicting when they're going to work and when not. And when you can even uh, suture the analyst, for example. So those are really the thoughts that I have about it. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting and very fascinating technology that's available hopefully now. And uh, like everything else, it takes a little bit of time to prepare the um, patients for, for this technology. But I'm certainly very, very interested. Yeah, in I think that's important to understand is that, you know, we have new technology. It's really hard sometimes to get it to the patients and have it be available. You know, of course, cost is everything for the hospitals, for the patients. I think it's also important to talk a little bit about and we're starting to put this data together that shows if you can prevent half of the reherniations, the cost savings there, particularly if you're talking globally uh, to the patient, to their families, to the hospital, to the uh, whole healthcare system, it's pretty amazing uh, how much a recurrent herniation costs. Maybe uh, speak a little bit to you know, what is that importance, Claudius, of uh, first in Europe and then next after that, Roger, tell us in the U.S. what your ideas are about what the costs are if you have to do a reoperation. Well, the costs, in, uh, interestingly enough, in our system, uh, because it's socialized, it's not as important as it is in, in the United States, even though it's becoming more more important now. But what's crucial for us and what we've learned, there are probably two things I would like to mention. One is that the main problem is that patients that do re-herniate, it's not only the cost, their outcome is much poorer. So you end up having patients in their 30s that have a, a, a much higher risk of being out of work, not regaining a normal life. So I think this is very, very crucial, and we can't forget about this. For, for the cost saving, it's quite obvious that if you avoid reherniations, that is a very important issue. And what you have to pay attention to is you learn with that new technology. That's something I realized through the study. And I think now after the study, we've also learned so much 
in the study, like oversizing implants, etc. This, this is, goes into detail now. But I think it's also important that you evolve with the technology and you get more experienced and at the end your results may be even better and in some of the high volume centers, the results are better than the average RCT results. So I think this is also important that you can even improve over the 50% reduction with time and with experience. Correct. And when I, when I say cost, I don't just mean monetary costs. I mean the cost to the psychologically, socially, family, work, uh, all of that, not just monetary. And, and in the U.S., it is a little bit different. So speak to us a little bit about uh, uh, your thoughts, Roger, about uh, what all of these uh, you know, adverse issues are uh, with a re-herniation event. You know, the, the politically correct answer is obviously the, the cost of the healthcare system, right. which is tremendous. And there are papers about you know, statistics. And, and that is certainly true, and that's very important. For, for the individual patient and for the individual surgeon, however, you know, this is kind of a vague number, and it's hard to really grasp. I mean, for me and for my program here and our practice here, it's the inferior outcome that patients have once they have a recurrent disc herniation and one, once this whole cascade of degenerative disc disease recurrent, once that starts, which is terrible to, to see in patients. The, the other problem is if you run a practice, especially where I practice here on the Upper East Side, it's like the emotional cost to the surgeon. <laughs> You know, to have patients come in, and uh, and and because you know, I give my you know most of my patients they have my cell phone number, and it's just uh, it becomes uh, emotionally for the surgeon extremely uh, a hardship. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to have a you know I want to have a practice where nobody has a recurrent discrimination, and they all go home and they never call me again, and they're all going to be happy and send me more patients yeah. on an individual level for every surgeon who's listening. The other thing which is crazy in this country is that we're actually getting paid for doing, you know, recurrent, and then you upgrade it to a fusion, you get paid even more. So that is a little bit perverted, and it's probably, it's a real problem, but it's a problem that's very, you know, typical for, for the society that we live in right now here in North America. So there's so many factors to this, but most importantly, I think, at the end of the day, I want to be the surgeon where nobody ever comes back with a recurrent discrimination because, you know, it's good for the patient, it's good for me, it's good for our practice, and, and that's how it should be. So on a very kind of uh, self-centered level, that, that's really what I'm most interested in. No, I think that's right. I mean, we, we have a saying here that when you operate on somebody, you marry them. I mean, you're, you're yeah. tied at the hip. I mean, you, I think we all three completely agree that the best chance of a good surgical outcome is the first procedure and hopefully last. This has been a really good segment on really talking about the, the state of the art, where we are with this preservation. And uh, we thank you for attending this and uh, uh, see you soon. Thanks to Dr. Nunley and Professors Tomei and Hartle. And thank you for listening and for helping us build a world where lumbar disc herniation doesn't define lives. Stay tuned to hear from the experts on what is next for disc preservation. Keep in mind that the products discussed in this podcast have labeling limitations. Barricade is indicated for reducing the incidence of reherniation and reoperation in skeletally mature patients with radiculopathy, with or without back pain, attributed to a posterior or posterior lateral herniation, and confirmed by history, physical examination, and imaging studies, which demonstrate neural compression using MRI to treat a large annular defect between four and six millimeters tall and between six and 10 millimeters wide, following a primary discectomy procedure at a single level between L4 and S1. All medical devices have risks. Please refer to barricade.com instructions for a full list of benefit and risk information.
U.S. law restricts this device to sale by or on the order of a physician. The guests on this podcast are consultants of Intrinsic Therapeutics. Mm-hmm.